using the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 12. In the fall, I began a series in Deuteronomy called Shaped. And the, the purpose of this uh, series, if you will, was really just uh, to walk through Deuteronomy, but to talk about what it looks like to live a life that is shaped for God's glory through His kingdom mission. And the aim of this whole series has been a wholehearted allegiance through a whole life obedience. A wholehearted allegiance through a whole life obedience. And so I began the series in looking at the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy. And in the first five chapters, we talked about four foundational pillars that we need to base our life upon. And then after that, we looked at five resolutions. And those resolutions helped us give words, help us shape what we understood God doing in our lives, but also how we join Him in the work of His redeeming labors within us through the gospel. And so that covered the first 11 chapters. And in those chapters, we see where Moses reviews the history of the people of Israel. They're on the cusp of entering the promised land. They've just come off of roughly 40 years of wandering in the desert. And in those years, uh, a generation has passed, as God said they would, because of their rebellion. And so they're standing on the edge of the river, preparing to cross the river and to go into the promised land. And what he's doing is he's reminding them, first of all, that God has saved them. Their exodus from Egypt is an act of God's salvation. You didn't do it, God did it. And he demonstrated his power and salvation through the plagues that he inflicted upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And then when he delivered them, he also showed his power, not only by carrying them out in a powerful way through the Red Sea, but providing for them and continually leading them in these 40 years in the desert. And so Moses uses that as the foundation from what he says, but also as a motivation for the people to hear the the word of God and to obey him because he's already saved you in this way. So when we pick up in chapter 12, chapter 12 is where Moses begins his second sermon, so to speak. And Moses begins to apply God's commands to their lives. He begins to talk about what does it look like to live out the commands of God. And he's explaining that to them. And so Chapters 12 through about 28, we'll look at some of these different ways. Now, from the first 11 chapters, we, we went chapter by chapter. I'm actually going to go into chapter 12 and 13, and then after that, we'll kind of pick up and we'll talk about some thematic material. We'll cover more ground in fewer weeks simply because uh, of, of the way the book is written and the repetition that Moses uses. We'll use it to look at the whole landscape of what he's teaching instead of just necessarily moving chapter by chapter. But as we prepare to do this, as Moses begins to instruct the people, I want us to look this morning at where he begins. 
The title of the sermon is called A Place for God's Name. A Place for God's Name. And I want to read the first seven verses for us as we begin. So go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Moses records, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Let's pause there for now. I want to talk about a place for God's name. And as we begin today, I want to recognize this, that when God begins to unpack for his people what it looks like to live in his kingdom in the world, he begins with worship. He begins with worship. Here's the big idea that I present to you today. It's simply this. Jesus makes our lives a place for God's name and his presence that he might be made known among all the world. Jesus makes our lives a place for God's name and presence that he might be made known among all people. The question that we address today is simply this. What is true Christian worship? There's been no small amount of arguments about this over the last 30 to 40 years. Many things have changed in the local church expression of worship. But what I want us to do today is not to get bogged down in the argument or, as many have called it, the wars of worship in the local church. But I want us to look biblically at what Moses is teaching the people. And I want us to see three expressions that shape true Christian worship for our lives today. Three expressions that shape true Christian worship. When God begins to teach his people and commands them to go in and, as he's already said, to take the land that he will give to them, he says this, there will be no idle worship among his people. You see, God is a God who stands not next to other gods, not even above other gods, but in non-comparison with any other God. Here's how Moses says it in the first 11 chapters. There is no other. There is no other. So God, when he begins to command his people to go in to take the land, he says that he will not be worshipped in the way that idols are worshipped. He will not be worshipped along with the idol worship, and he will not be worshipped in addition to the idol 
worship. You see, God is not one God among many. He is the one above all others. And we too often begin to believe that relativity is something we created in this generation. Relativity that says God is one among many. Pluralism was not created in our generation or the one that preceded it, but is rooted in the very heart of Satan himself that tries to diminish God and raise all of the other false idols. You see, the place that God chooses for the worship of his people is distinct in order to reveal that he is worthy to be worshipped and to demonstrate a glory that is unique to him and to him alone. And so it tells us that God put his name on a place, and in that place he would make his habitation for worship. Six different times in this chapter alone, Moses uses this phrase that we see in verse 5. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. Six times he identifies this place. You see, God's worship contrasts all false worship and distinguishes God's people among all the peoples of the world. True worship occurs, friends, only where God's name resides. Where God's name resides. And so this brings us to our first expression of true worship. And here it is. Expression number one of true Christian worship is simply this. It's relationship. Relationship. Worship centers in the place where God puts his name. Worship centers in the place where God puts his name. Worship is important for God's people because it matters to God. God makes it important for us. Moses explains what he had already stated earlier, but now he's beginning to unpack as he instructs the people into how to worship God. And and he's teaching his people how to worship because it matters to him. But listen, worship not only matters to God, it matters for us. It matters for us. Worship is not something we just offer God, but through a right worship to God, it's also the place where God meets with his people. And in that meeting, he fills them, he assures them, he blesses them, and any number of his provision for his people that take place. But what I want you to see in this first expression is this, is that relationship has always been God's primary concern in worship. Relationship has always been God's primary concern in worship. That's not just a new way that we've talked about it in our generation. If you look back in the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy, God contrasts himself and the worship that he desires from his people with all the false worship in the land. And what's the one distinctive between the God who was the one versus the many other gods in the land? All of the many gods had a form but could not speak. And God said what? Do not put an idol of me up. For I will speak and that will distinguish me from the gods. He is the God who speaks. He is the God who is present. He is the God who is present. 
with his people. And so relationship has always been God's primary concern in true worship. This is relationship, not ritual. It distinguishes the worship of God's people among the idolatry of other nations. And God's worship is distinct because his name and his habitation or his presence is with his people. Listen, if your God can't talk, it's not really likely that he's going to show up either, right? Either that or he's mute and can't say anything. Look at the relational distinctives that he points out here as he instructs and commands his people in how to worship. First of all, he says this, that God alone and he only will be worshipped in this place. That his name is worthy of this exclusive worship. That God's worship will be distinguished not only that he alone and he only will be worshipped in that place, but in the way or how his people worship him. He says, do not go in and worship me the way these people worship their gods. You cannot bring glory to me nor for your own life if you worship in that way. It will be futile. It will be useless to you. God's people worship, why? Because he has saved them. You see, in religion, we worship to beckon God's salvation. In Christianity, we worship because God has saved us. That's day and night, friends. They're nothing alike. Nothing alike. And all the people in the land were beckoning upon their gods, crying out to them, cutting themselves, performing uh, perverted and rituals of every sort, begging of their God, wondering and never left to know for certain whether salvation would be theirs or not. But Moses says this, God's already saved you. He brought you out of the land. Salvation is not left to wonder if you will receive it. It is your primary motivation for why. You worship. And it determines how you worship. The third uh, relational distinctive to identify God's people that he mentions is that God's worship will be distinguished by his presence. That he'll make his habitation among his people. And, and, and not only do false gods not speak, but they don't show up either. That's so frustrating. You ever been stood up at lunch? Ever been stood up for coffee? You're supposed to meet somebody and you know, maybe their excuse was totally legit, but still, it's, ah, you know. Or maybe they didn't even call. They didn't text. You haven't heard from them. You didn't talk to them. They just never showed up. Now, imagine that person was the perfect creator of the universe. What a disappointment, right? And what are you left to think? What did I do wrong, right? What's wrong with me? And, and our thinking begins to follow these patterns. But God says what? I'm already there. I'm already there waiting for you. My habitation has been put where my name resides. And I wait for you. And I will meet you. You see, God meets with his people in worship. He inhabits the praise of his people. God wants to assure his people that he will meet with them. And so this place of worship is the place where God has put his name and where his presence resides. If we look back 
in the Old Testament, specifically in the years of the wilderness. We know that the tabernacle was the center of worship in the desert. And the tabernacle, the literal meaning of its name basically means to hang out with, to be with. If you tabernacle with someone, we don't typically use that word today, but you're hanging out with them, you're with them. And so God said, I give you the tabernacle to remind you that though it seems you're in a desert wasteland, I am with you. And all that they went through to worship in the tabernacle was to remind them in their practices of God's presence with his people, even in the wilderness. Later, once they were established in the promised land, we see the temple is built and rebuilt later, even after that. But the temple is built and the very design of the temple and the furniture of the temple and the way that people flowed through the temple was designed in such a way so that God's people would know, I am with you. I'm with you. I'm here, here to meet with you. But even in the temple, there was a curtain that separated the mass from the Holy of Holies. And the Bible tells us that once a year, the high priest would... Enter the holy of holiest places, and he would make sacrifices for his own sins and sacrifices for the sins of the people to resemble the breaking of the separation, and yet the curtain remained. But, friends, God taught his people that he was with them, and he taught them how to worship with both the tabernacle and the temple. But a transformation, or shall we say rather, an incarnation occurs in the New Testament. For God's name and God's presence came in one person. The Bible tells us in John 1.14 that the word of God took on human flesh and became a man. The Bible tells us that when Christ died on the cross, the curtain of the temple that separated the people from their God was rent torn in two, no longer dividing him. You see, what we understand to happen in the New Testament through the incarnation of the divine one into human flesh is that Jesus becomes the new temple. Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist reminds us that when he went down to the Jordan and he told John the Baptist, baptize me, and when he came up out of the water, the scriptures record that a dove descended upon him and a voice was heard from God himself to say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. God put his name on Jesus. The Bible also records that Jesus is the new temple because In John chapter 2 where Jesus comes into the temple and they're they're selling, they're perverting the things of their practices and they're telling people that you have to perform for God to love you and to accept you and to save you. And in righteous anger, Jesus rends the temple and he cleans the house and he turns over the tables and he runs them out. And when they ask, by what sign do you think you're doing what you're doing? We're in charge here. Jesus said, tear the temple down and in three days I'll rebuild it. And in their religious ignorance, they thought he was talking about brick and mortar. And he was referring to when they would crucify him and three days later, he would be raised from the dead. And then in John 4, we see this conversation between Jesus 
and the woman at the well, a woman who had come to the well at a time of day when no one else would be there because she was so ashamed of the way she had lived, she couldn't even live with herself. Jesus said, you've been married five times and none of them worked out. And now the man you live with is not your husband. She said, how do you know all this about me? And so they begin to have a conversation that even she begins to open her eyes to the spiritual nature of what Jesus is saying. And Jesus tells her, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't just be drawing water from this well to live, but you'd be drinking the living water that I am. And so they begin to talk about worship. And she says, you know, the Jews worship on their mountain. And they say that's where God's placed his name and his habitation. And the Samaritans worship on their mountain. And they say that that is where God has placed his name and his habitation. And she says to Jesus, where is God's name? Where is his presence? Surely she had the condemnation and the shame and the guilt of her whole life beating down upon her, wondering how much religion would be enough to meet with God. And what did Jesus say? He said, I am the new temple wherein which you will worship God. And those who will worship God, those who God seeks, are those who will worship in spirit and in truth. Not in geography or location. And so Jesus says, I am the new temple. You see, Jesus, friends, in relationship, he centers our worship. God put his name in his presence when he sent Jesus to become a man, to live a perfect life as our atoning and to, to die as our atoning sacrifice, that we might only not know God, but hear me, as Paul says in Galatians, that we might be known by God. You know a lot of people that don't know you, but it's the ones who know you that are most precious to you. And that's what he's saying to us. Listen to how Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now I want you to listen. Because remember what Moses says six times in one chapter about where God will meet his people. Hear what Paul explains that has happened in Jesus Christ. Therefore, because he humbled himself and became obedient even to death upon a cross, God has highly exalted him. And he has given him a name that is above every name. What name is this? It's the name that Moses has been telling them all about. It's the name that is like none other. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess to the glory of God that He is Lord. That He is Lord. God has put His name on Jesus Christ. He is our temple where God's presence resides. He centers our worship in life through a relationship with God. Jesus brings God's name and his presence to us. God places himself at the center of our being in relationship through Jesus so that he can 
be the source of all of our living. You see, Jesus inhabits us. And the Bible goes on to tell us in, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians that, and in Colossians, that we, we are not only to know that Jesus is the temple, but because Jesus' presence is in us, we as Christians become the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. And because he lives within us, the local church, this gathering that you're a part of right now, if you're a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, you become the temple of the living God. In this world, in this life, the presence and the name of God rests upon you for this Life And Moses goes on to instruct the people in this. Verse 8 and following, he goes on to say, You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, where everyone is doing whatever is right in their own eyes. For you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan... And live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit. And when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name there. The second occurrence of this refrain of a place for God's name. You see, Moses instructs the people that they are not to do as the others in the land are doing and even as the others among them are doing. In other words, the modus operandi of the Israelites at this moment was just do whatever feels good. Do whatever you think is right. Relativity, run amok. And Moses says, that is not the way you will live in the land that God is giving you to live. He directs them to live all of life in worship to God. God wants worship to demonstrate what his people know of him, that he is the source of all of life. Moses tells us earlier in Deuteronomy, you're going to go into the land and you're going to inhabit cities that you did not build. You're going to live in homes that you did not construct. You're going to harvest fruit and food that you did not plant. Where did it come from? It came from my hand. I am your source. I am your provider for all of life. You see, God as provider means that worship can be offered through all of his provision. And this is where we see the ex second expression of true Christian worship. And it's the expression of stewardship, friends. Stewardship. Worship involves all the Lord's provision for you in life. And true worship is meaningful in this life and gives meaning to this life. I believe this is the real beauty of stewardship. Worship through stewardship expresses that not only God provides all that we need and all that we have in this life, but, but more than that. See, we get so entangled into guarding our pocketbooks when we start talking about stewardship that we have trouble really listening to anything else. Is he going for it? Is he going for it? Not going to let him get it. You know what I mean? It's that kind of mindset. I heard one preacher say, people get funny when I start talking about money. You know what I mean? That's, that's kind of how, and stewardship is like, oh, warning, warning. That's covert word for money. Guard yourself, right? That's kind of how we often get in this. But listen, 
Stewardship expresses worship in that it engages all of life to glorify God. Stewardship is not a Christian financial management plan. It includes money, but it includes so much more than money. It involves all of life in true worship through relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, it means that no part or no aspect of life is disconnected from the one who is our life, Jesus Christ. And stewardship confesses that God is the source and provider of all in life. He is the source of our time or our being, you know, when we're present. He is the source of our talent or our ability, what we're able to do. And not only our natural giftings, our natural strengths and our natural abilities, but rather also the intellect and the skills that we grow and that we develop and mature in as our intellect grows and as our experiences grow and as we mature and develop expertise in this life. Why is that? Because of the talents and abilities that God has given to us. And he is also Lord of our treasure, but not just our money, all of our life treasure in which we are able to produce through this life because of our doing. You see, what we have and what we do with what we have is not determined by what is right in our eyes, but rather, Moses says, it is determined by what is right in the eyes of God, what honors him in worship. And here's what I want to say about stewardship, friends. In in my years of ministry, it's been so compelling in my deepening of the conviction in God and His ability in this world to realize that He can take stuff in this world, stuff that has no inherent value beyond this world. Ever seen a U-Haul following a hearse? No, why? Because after death, it doesn't matter. And all the stuff, the the physical stuff and the stuff that only exists in this world. And it's not necessarily or inherently bad in this world. It's just limited to this world. God takes that stuff and brings eternal glory from it. God gives value and meaning and purpose to things that have no value, meaning or purpose beyond this world. And the stuff of our life, the money and the possessions and the belongings and the abilities of our life and even the presence of our life, God gives us the ability to be present and to be able and to invest in order to bring eternal value, meaning, and glory from that that will not survive beyond this world. I think that is only possible by a God whose provision extends beyond the abilities of this earth. That is amazing. That is amazing to me. God wants to bring glory to himself through that. Worship extends through stewardship in order to involve all of the Lord's provision in this world. What you eat for lunch today will be no more when you consume it. But if you eat it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you give thanks to him for that, it will bring blessing to your life that is eternal even in that momentary fragment of time with which you give it. That's how God brings meaning to our life, friends. Every moment of our life, every activity, every deed, everything. Stewardship as an expression of worship means this. 
please hear me. It means this, that if you do not or you will not worship Jesus with all of your life or in all of your life, then you're not truly worshiping Jesus at all in life. Well, we need to hear this, friends. I'm not about to kick off a fundraising campaign, but my heart is for you. Because Jesus has told us, you will not serve two masters. And where your money is, and I would say this, even where your talent and your time is, there your heart is. And we live in a world that is so managerially astute that we divide our life up so cleanly to offer portions and fragments and fractions and things in different directions and we manage it so well. And what God says is, I don't want to slice. I want to be at the center of the whole. And yet we've given God a slice and we've said, God, you need to be happy with this. But you see, friends, when the expression of true Christian worship through stewardship brings Jesus to the center in relationship and then begins to take all in this life and all of life and to offer it to him as worship, to bring glory to him through that. And you say, God, this is, because of, this is not because of me. My job and what I accomplish and what I produce, yes, in this world, people look and go, good job, Lane, or, you know, way to do that. And, and they do that for you, too, and you accomplish and you produce and you cultivate, and, and that's good. You earn a living and you pay your bills and you, you know, whatever the case may be. But I'm, I'm talking about a broader meaning, a deeper understanding of life here. Where you bring honor and glory to God because you know it is from His hand that He delivers every morsel of food, every moment of time. And you offer it back to Him. I'm telling you, if you quarantine Him into a time, here's what it'll do. That will not only not honor Him in worship, it will not satisfy you in worship. Because when you do not worship God in the way that He says, but rather you worship Him in the way that your eyes think are right and that you determine is right, then you give a portion to God and you beckon upon Him and then when things don't go the way you want them to go, when answers don't get delivered in the timeliness that you expect them, or they come in a way that you didn't want that answer to begin with, you turn back to God and you say, How dare you! How dare you respond to me in this way? I gave you all that I thought I needed to give you. All that I thought you wanted from me. And I gave it to you in a way that I honored and worshipped you through it. And this is what you returned to me? You will not maintain that in your life. That's religion. And religion will crush you. It will crush your heart. It will crush your thinking. And it will crush your soul. 
it will not only separate you from God, it will push you further and further away from God. And what I'm saying to you is worship is stewardship, does not push you away from God, but it brings you into the presence of God more fully and with deeper and more satisfying experiences with Him in every and in all aspects of life. You go, I just don't know if I can do that, Pastor. I know. It's called faith. It's called faith. And you go, well, will God, will God satisfy me if I do this? Listen, this is the very point Moses has already made. Jesus is the center of our worship. God's already saved you. Your greatest satisfaction is in Christ and in the way that God leads and commands and instructs us to live, not in doing what is right in our own eyes. Because, listen, stewardship also means this. Look at verse 12 of chapter 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And he goes on to talk about who all you'll rejoice with. You know what rejoice means? It means overflowing with joy. Just continually being refilled with the joy that God brings. You see, friends, in stewardship as worship, what you do is you release the chains that stuff puts on you in life. And you free your life up through the worship of all aspects and areas of life and in every way to receive what God has for you. And you know what he's going to give you? Increasing and overflowing joy. Increasing and overflowing satisfaction. Increasing and overflowing meaning. The very things that you most deeply desire and that most compellingly motivate you to worship him. Stewardship means increasing joy and blessing for God's people. You know, the next two weeks, you're going to hear more about serving in the church. And so often we think about stewardship, like I've already said, we just think about money. But I I want to propose another angle to you and another understanding to you. These serve testimonies that you're going to hear over the next two weeks are really testimonies of stewardship of life. Where they bring their being and their abilities and they apply them to serve the Lord. That's stewardship, friends. That's faithful stewardship. It's a tangible illustration of investing our time and our talent in order to worship God through serving Him. So finally, we come to the third expression of true worship. It begins in verse 15 and really goes through verse 28. And he talks about when you go into the land, you'll be able to slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire. And here's the thing, is that God's going to increase the land of which they will inhabit. He's going to bless them and expand. And when they do, people are going to live further out from the place where they will come to worship. And as they live out there, it's going to be more difficult for them to travel and for the animals to survive and take all the food for all of their caravan to be able to get back to the place. So God says this, look, I don't want you just to worship me in one place, but I want you to be worshiping me wherever you are. And so we see this third expression of true worship and it's this it's mission the third expression of worship is mission where worship produces one's witness in the world and as he continues to instruct the people in how they should live in each of their cities in faithful worship God says look don't wait till you get to the to the tabernacle or to the temple to worship me worship me wherever you are because there I am with you God's not only concerned about his people when they live in the chosen place of worship, but he desires that his people worship him in all places. You see, mission means worship is a way of life wherever you are at and whomever you are with. 
Mission as worship means that worship is a way of life wherever you are and whomever you are with. And real worship through mission pervades all of life, friend. Pervades all of life. Let me give you just a quick uh, parameters for how to, how to make decisions about worshiping in your life. Because, because what God does is he gives them grace here to do things that prior to they weren't able to do or couldn't do or didn't know if they could do. Or others were doing them, but they knew they were doing them in ways that did not honor God. And then there were things that were happening that could not honor God. And what do we do with that, God? We go into this land, how do we know what honors you and what doesn't honor you? How do we know in order to live in faithful worship to you? Well, real worship through mission pervades all of life. And when God grants us grace in our salvation, he does so to receive in freedom the good of this world, friends. And he tells his people to eat meat. That's one of the first things he says, you can eat meat. And to us today, we're kind of like, what? What, were they all vegan or what? I mean, you know, what's the deal with that? But what you have to understand is in that day, and even into the New Testament, because we see these arguments continually carried out in the New Testament, is that the way that some meat was offered in worship to idols was false worship. And so to eat that meat literally meant to engage in idolatry. And Paul, Paul talks about this extensively, that look, There are some meats that it's okay to eat, but you shouldn't eat them at certain times because there's going to be certain people that you're going to influence. They're going to think you're idolizing the idol and you're just trying to have dinner, you know? It's just, you need to be wise and mindful of that about that. But what Moses is teaching the people here gives us the foundation that that we can receive. God grants us the grace to receive in freedom the good of this world. And even some of the meat that, that, that they would have refused because, well, that was part of idol worship. God says, look, you can eat meat and there is some kinds of meat you shouldn't eat. And don't eat this parts of meat, but there is meat you can eat. Praise God. I missed a whole opportunity to talk about being a vegan here. I'm a vegan. I love them next to my meats. <clears throat> It wasn't funny the first service either, so. See, what God does is he gives us the grace to distinguish between freedom and false worship. Boy, that's so good. Because false worship, there's always a condemnation that's boiling. There's a guilt and a shame that heaps up. But when God's freedom through his grace comes, he says to us, receive this. This is good. This is good. Worship me through this. And that's when mission becomes worship. When we worship through mission, God grants us the grace, listen, to reject the things of the world that do not and cannot honor Him. Here's the things I've learned about these. These are really appealing. So are, These are like Twinkies. You know what I'm saying? There's not one ounce of nutritional value in it spiritually. Man, they're good, you know? I mean, that, but, but, but God grants us the grace to say no. It's the things, when they went into the land, they were going to see people engaging in this idolatry, and even some of their own people, they're going to go, God, I see that, and I, well, I just, I, there's a check in my spirit, and, and, and I know because of the conscience and the conviction of my conscience, there's no way you can be glorified in that. And God says, that's right, say no, reject it, have nothing to do with it. God does command that Christians reject some of the things 
some of the practices of the world because they can honor, they do not honor Him. But then also God grants us grace, hear me friends, to redeem that which the world has perverted outside of God's will. You see, mission as worship means that the way we live produces a faithful witness for God. And here's how we'll do that. We'll receive the good of this world in the way that God can be honored through it. We will reject the perverted things of this world that God cannot and will not be honored through. And the things of this world that the world has taken, they're from God, but the world has perverted them to destroy the honor of God's name. We will redeem them in the way that God says he can be honored through them and enjoy them for that purpose and that reason. That's what it means to live mission as worship. A life of obedience bears a faithful witness to God's power in the world, that he alone is worthy of our faith. But listen, God doesn't just want to be glorified in your outward obedience. God desires that our relationship with him would penetrate so deeply within us that even the desires of our heart would become an act of worship unto him. The psalmist expresses it in this way when he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. God, penetrate to the depths of my being. And when you get there, overflow with joy and praise for your name. Because your name rests. there. That's God's desire for us in worship, friends. And when God is glorified in life, others will be drawn to him. Our witness should be never absent of the verbal presence. But it's like two wings of an airplane. I remember Roy Fish, a great evangelist professor in seminary. He said, you know, wondering if our testimony and our witness for Christ should be with words or just with deeds. He said, answer this question. Do you want the right wing or the left one on an airplane? He said, it, it takes both to get lift. When God's people worship in all of life, we, we bear a faithful witness that demonstrates the glory of God among all the nations of the world. Listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whatever you eat or drink, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the power of God's redemption. Eating and drinking can be worship. Colossians 3 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We're turning every second, every thought, every inclination, every activity, every word, every attitude of this life becomes a glory unto God through relationship with Jesus Christ in worship. When God instructs His people how to live mission, how to live missionally, we hear that a lot today. At LifePoint, we like to say it this way, to live as missioners. He begins with worship. You see, worship is the catalyst for mission. And mission is a fuel that intensifies worship. Worship means that all of life is lived to bring God glory. Mission means living all of life in order to make God's glory and name known among the people. Worship produces increasing and multiplying mission. Mission produces deepening and intensifying worship. And when you live out in relationship with Jesus, you live to make his name known among the world. And when you live to make Jesus' name known among the people of the world, the glory of his name deepens and strengthens its own presence in your life. 
See the relationship of how God blesses us when we live in his blessing. For every Christian, every person who's been born again, who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of life begins in right worship unto God through the Lord Jesus Christ that is then lived out in mission as a faithful witness to the glory of his name. I ask the worship team to return. And as they return, might I give you three questions to set your mind upon, to set your heart upon in the next few moments. As we respond to the Lord Jesus, what he has said to us today, let me ask you this. Is your life centered in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you come to the point in your life where you've confessed that he is God, where you've confessed that your sin in your life has separated you from God, where you've repented of your sin, and you've placed your faith in Him. Friends, Jesus is the new temple. Jesus centers our worship. Jesus is the one in whom God's name and presence resides. And Jesus wants to reside in you. Does your relationship with Jesus involve all of your life in worship of God? Or just convenient portions of it? And finally, I would ask, who is your life bearing witness of in the world today? Like a word cloud? You know, computers will take a paragraph now or even take a whole book. And they'll create a word cloud of the dominant words that are represented throughout that book. Sometimes because of the number of times they're used. Sometimes because of where they're placed in the literary pattern. And how they're used for emphasis strategically. And what it'll do is you've seen it. There'll be tiny little words that you can't hardly see. And there'll be words that are a little bigger. And then words that just like in the center and all over. Just really big. If a word cloud of your life was developed. Would Jesus be visible? Would, would he be anywhere on the screen? to go to a place that God has chosen to put his name and his habitation will dwell there and that place is a person Jesus Christ we want you to know him personally today let's stand and worship as we respond to the Lord